Do we pray? Am I on? Yep. Uh, how about I... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Be pathetic for a second. <coughs> My wife recovered so quick and I'm just that bloke who's just gone on pathetically getting tired and never recovering. Women really are tough. Just um, put that out there for you. Um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might bless this time as we consider these words. Uh, give us hearts and minds that are um, able to focus and give good attention to what you've said. But we do pray for a deep spiritual work tonight, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would actually go beyond the mere rational and do something quite deep in us in terms of our hearts, our lives, our, our whole being captivated by the things that you have done for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a particular question I want to wrestle with you tonight over, and it comes from John 11. It's the question of what was necessary to save us? What, what was necessary to save us? What did it take to save us? Now, I think it's an important question because there is a kind of Christianity that's sort of half-baked, half-hearted, apathetic, casual, uh, superficial kind of Christianity that just drifts along and I think that culture, Christianity, tends to be driven by not having thought much about what it took to save us. When you don't appreciate how much was done, it's easy to drift and think very little of the Christian faith. I don't know um, whether you've seen this ever happen but um, People who get visited in hospital, it's a beautiful thing to have someone visit in hospital and it's been lovely to reflect on Glenn's years with us. One of the reasons we brought Glenn on was because as, as we were seeking to reach more and more people, we just couldn't all be going and doing the visiting in hospital, for instance. And so um, one of the things uh, we, we talked to Glenn about was, um, you know, would you be able to invest in making sure everyone in our church gets visited and cared for in hospital and bring me in when it's really dire, when the person's about to die, you know, I'll come in then when it's sort of, because I can't go to everybody, all this kind of thing. And, uh, and people got to know that that was the case, that I would come in when, when they were about to die. And you can imagine how that went. There was one lady I visited, a lovely old Christian woman, who I was told was near death. And so I made, you know, I made time to go and see her. But you should have seen, when I walked into a room, you should have seen her face, all the blood drained out of it. <laughs> And she said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and she, it was like the um, Grim Reaper had walked in the door and um, she is my time up? I thought I was getting better. Uh, but uh, people get visited in hospital, it's a beautiful thing. And when you get visited in hospital, uh, there's much to be thankful for. You've taken the time to come. But here's the deal. Once you realise, for instance, that someone who's come and visited you has taken five hours of driving to get wherever they were to come and visit you and then go back home again, and you see what cost it was to them to come and see you, you don't just go, that's lovely. You go, that is really moving. That's profound. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, here it is. Do you find yourself drifting as a Christian? Living a life as a Christian where you're just going through the motions, feeling like the Christian faith is just another part in your life. Well, the key for you tonight is to think deeply on what was necessary to save you. If you can think on that tonight and then reflect on it daily for the rest of your days, the more you get in touch with what was necessary to make it possible for you to be saved the more you will 
rid yourself of superficial Christianity, of casual, drifting Christianity. And the consequence of having thought deeply about what was necessary, what did it take to save us, will be two very particularly powerful things. It has the power to humble us and the power to lift us up. And so I want to, I want to tackle those as we come to the end tonight, the power to humble us and lift us up. Now, what was necessary? Well, I want to suggest to you, reflecting on chapter 11 of John's Gospel over the years, I think what was necessary emerges from this part of the Bible we've just had read as Imogen read it for us. This is a place where I think John draws attention to a particular moment just before Jesus' death where lots of these issues come together to, to, to give us a sense of what went on, what really mattered, what was necessary. Let me give you the context... Uh, if you were with us last week, Jesus has just done the most extraordinary miracle called a sign, the last of the great seven signs. He's raised a man dead to life again, four days dead, a man called Lazarus. And um, just by a word, just by speaking, uh, Lazarus, get up. And the man, life came into him, he stood and came out. No one pretends that was uh, um, easy to do, everyone's astonished. Uh, And verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary from Jerusalem, they'd come out to see uh, the family because of their grief, but they saw what Jesus did and they believed in Jesus. There were more and more people being captivated by this person of Jesus. Um, And, uh, uh, but then you, then you see verse 46, that not everyone was captivated by Jesus. They all saw the miracle, no one denied that it happened. This is an interesting thing about human nature, no one denied that they saw it happen. But some of them went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is uh, the Jewish nation's religious council. It's like the parliament that runs the religious country, if you like, the Sanhedrin. And they called this high-level meeting of the, the great leadership of the country. And it's in this meeting that I want to suggest to you we see what was necessary to save us. The three things necessary to save us. And I want to take us through them. The first one is substitution. What was necessary? Substitution. Now, I'm going to say that word a lot tonight and I want to, um, I want to make sure as you leave tonight it's bouncing around your head. What was necessary was substitution. Now, come down a few verses. We'll come back to the verses we've missed, but come down to verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. Now, just by the by, Caiaphas, we know from outside of the Bible, was high priest that year. Uh, this uh, Tuesday night at Life, you'll hear about the historicity of the Bible or the historical evidence of the Bible. This Bible, it, it just keeps, it keeps picking up just facts of history. That it's, it's written by someone who was there, who knew what was going on, and everything we can check around it proves that that's exactly the case. Caiaphas was the name of the high priest 2,000 years ago in that very context. He says, you know nothing at all, you do not realise, here it is, verse 50, you do not realise that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It's better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, let me just sort of tease all that out for a second and then make make sense of it. What what he's talking about is a political issue. Uh, what What Caiaphas is saying is that Jesus has become such a popular figure... Uh, and there are so many people now seeking to follow him, um, that that is going to create a problem for the Romans who were ruling Israel. So the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, was, they were a vassal state, they'd been conquered by the Roman Empire, and so they had to pay allegiance to Rome, and Rome were very, very cautious about uprisings. 
any hint of an uprising, the, the Roman centurions, the armies came in and crushed them. And they were brutal. In fact, uh, some years after this particular moment in AD 70, there was an uprising in, in Jerusalem uh, and the Romans came and completely decimated Israel. Destroyed the temple. Uh, in fact, there's nothing left of the temple from AD 70 because they took every stone apart. They, so dest- they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the people. So what they're afraid of here is, is not a crazy thing. Now, why be afraid of it because of Jesus? Because Jesus comes claiming not just to be a God of, not just to be a person of love, he comes claiming to be king. He comes claiming to be the Messiah, which is another way of talking about the King of Israel. And people are gathering around him because he's, he's not just making a wild claim, he's demonstrating the substance of it, that he, he teaches like an extraordinary king, he, he has a character and a depth to himself and he has the power, he comes with all... And so many people are starting to follow him right at the time of nationalistic fervour. Chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover. So this is right near the Passover. The Passover in ancient Israel was a time when um, the the population of Jerusalem swirled with people who came sort of waving um, the boxing kangaroo. Do you know what I mean? Saying, Israel, Israel, oi, 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 do you know? We're we're the great great nation of the world and we should throw off the Romans. And so that was the mood around the Passover. And Jesus is coming into that context with a great crowd. He's the king, they're claiming to be, and they're claiming him to be king and the Sanhedrin can see where this is heading. If we let him go, verse 48, if we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation, as they did later. And so Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the uh, politically savvy leader, he realises that if we don't get rid of Jesus, we're going to have the people of Israel killed. And so what he says is, um, you don't realise that it's better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation to perish. He's talking about substitution. It's better for one man to die for the people, that is, in the place of the people, instead of the nation of Israel dying. One man in the place of, as a substitute for the people. He dies, we don't. He's talking about substitution. Now, Jesus is innocent, but he justifies this evil because there is so much else at stake with the nation remaining alive. Better to kill one man unjustly than have all of us die. It's political talk. But now look at verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied. He spoke the words that God wanted him to speak. That is to say, God was the one saying it's better for one man to die in the place of the people. Caiaphas said it to solve a political problem, to ensure that the people didn't suffer the wrath of Rome. Instead of the people suffering the wrath of Rome, let's replace them with one man and have him suffer the wrath of Rome. Substitute. 
But what verse 51 tells us is that Jesus' death won't just be in the place of the people of Israel to save them from the wrath of Rome. He will be the substitute for the people of Israel to save them from the righteous wrath of God, to deal with sin. And this death, incidentally, this death there, we haven't got time to go into it particularly tonight, but this death there, verse 52, wouldn't just be for the Jewish nation, but also for the scattered children of God, which is a reference, I take it, to the fact that God's purpose was to see people from all the nations of the world saved. His death wouldn't just be for Jews, it would be for people in Australia, Europeans, Americans, people all around the world, such is the significance of his death. You see, what was necessary to save us? That Jesus dies in our place. To deal with the wrath of a just and holy God against sin. The high priest, he could only see the problem of Rome and the solution was that Jesus should die to save as a substitute for the people. But behind that thinking was a deeper truth that was given to him by God, that Jesus did need to die, but needed to die to save us from sin. Now, this is uh, not a new idea in the Gospel of John, it's not a new idea in the life of Jesus. Uh, very early in the life of Jesus, John the Baptist made a very similar reference about Jesus, saying when he saw him approaching in, in the early parts of John's Gospel, he said, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Same ideas. The Lamb of God, a substitute from the sacrificial system who will stand under the judgment of God as a substitute for sinful people to take away their sin, to take their sin onto himself and suffer God's judgment and to do that for the whole world, not just for Israel. This idea is woven all the way through uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, what was necessary to make it possible for you and me to be saved? First, that someone dies in our place. That someone was our substitute, that that someone gave their life in our place so that we might not die. Now that is an astonishingly humbling truth. Now, it, it actually raises questions. Let me reflect on some of the questions. Many people then find themselves going, when they hear that, you, you, you're saying that Jesus needed, someone needed to die because of my sin, um, to save me from sin. You find people asking a question like this, Really? Was sin that serious? Uh, it's one of the great questions of our culture. It's actually one of the things that um, distinguishes biblical Christianity from our culture. And it's one of the things that will make you, if you're a biblical Christian, uh, completely out of, uh, out of sorts with the culture around you. You'll be swimming against the tide because our culture around us just doesn't think sin matters even if it recognises there is such a thing as sin. Now, what is sin? Sin, uh, you can understand sin as a horizontal issue, it's being selfish in my relationships, it's living for myself so that I'm greedy, um, uh, hurtful, uh, you know, I, I, I use people for my purposes as sinful. Um, but the Bible would say there's a vertical dimension to it, which is uh, I'm selfish in my relationship with God. That is, instead of bowing to Him and living for Him, I live for myself and I've betrayed his lordship over my life. I've committed treason. That's what sin is, a rebelliousness against God. 
and his rule over me. Now, lots of people would deny that that's even a, a thing, sin, but those, those people in our society who recognise there is something wrong with humanity, there is a sin problem that we have, many of them are still left with this question, is it really that big a deal? Is it such a big deal that God needs someone to die? You know, um, have, you, have you heard about um, the act of treason? where a person who's raised as, as an American uh, sells secrets from America to the enemy to help them in their battle against America. It's treasonous, you see. We've had a few people do that in recent times. They've been locked in prison. But the punishment for treason is death. But most of us find ourselves going, oh, really? It's not that bad. In, in decades of peacetime, you find yourself going... Treason's not that big a deal, really. But during a war, when lives are on the line, people were shot because of treason, because it was so serious. It, cost. it was obvious that it cost. Now, in our day and age, this is the challenge. Sin against God, treason against God, is it really that serious? Well, how do we make sense of this uh, conviction of the Bible that sin is that serious, that someone needs to die because of it? How do we work that out? Well, there's a couple of ways you can work out how serious sin is. One is that you can actually look into the nature of sin, you know, explore what sin's being, when the Bible talks about what it is and, and how it is an offence against the infinite majesty of a creator God who gave us everything. You know, you can look into the essence and nature of sin and, and step back and go, Oh, okay, I'm starting to see it's a bit more serious than I thought. There's another way into seeing how serious sin is. It's by looking at what was required to deal with it. When you understand what needed to happen, what was necessary to save us from it, you start to see how serious it is. Let me illustrate this. It's not a great illustration. It's the best I've got at the moment. I don't have many great illustrations. But um, I, in my backyard many years ago, uh, we used to have this tree, a golden cane palm. Now, it's a palm tree. I don't know if you know much about golden cane palms, but they're the ones that shoot up lots of palm tree stalks and they're kind of golden cane looking as a palm. All right? and, uh, but palm trees have got these, these massive root systems that just go everywhere down in the ground. Right? This is a big one. And so anyway, I, said, I thought I'd set aside a sort of Sunday morning, a couple of hours to dig it out and get rid of it. So I began dinging early in the morning and uh, after two hours I was still there. After three hours I thought I'd made, I made a massive hole around this thing and I tied up a rope to the, the palm and ran it back through a pulley system because I am a civil engineer so I know how to do this kind of stuff. I ran it through, back through a, a pulley system to the veranda, one of the posts in the, on the veranda and started to pull. <laughs> now what do you think happened? You know where this is going, don't you? What happened was the, veranda, the, 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 the palm didn't even shake but the veranda started to pull down. So I dug some more, I dug another two hours and I was there all morning and I was young and fit so I could do this but I was digging, digging and it was, did it again. I called a friend and I said, I need help. So a friend came round and uh, we dug for another couple of hours together and he was a fireman so we really had a great system going. We put this pulley up to two things and started to pull the whole deck down that way but the, 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 car, the golden paint pump didn't move at all. And after, we were there hours and hours and hours, all the way through the mid-afternoon, and then we found another friend. But we found a friend who had an excavator, like a real machine. And he came into the backyard, <laughs> crushing everything as he drove this excavator in. And, um, and he took an hour, two hours, to dig the thing out. 
And when he finally picked up this golden cane palm, the whole excavator fell over with the weight of it. <laughs> he was glad he came around to help. Um, do you know what? You know my lesson? When I saw how much, what it actually took to get the thing out, I realised how big a problem I had. It was a problem I could have spent five years digging to try and solve. You see, when I, took, when I saw that it took that machine that long to dig it out and even it struggled, I realised I, I had no hope. Now, here's the point. It's not a perfect illustration, but it helps make the point that when you look at what God says was required, necessary, to deal with your sins so that you can be forgiven and reconciled to God, when you see what was necessary, the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you see what was necessary, you begin to get a sense of how deeply rooted the problem of sin is in our lives. How much it's polluted our souls and offended God. What was necessary is that someone die in our place, dead for you as a substitute. There's the first one. Let me take you through the second more quickly. These are more like layers around the core of substitution. Substitution is at the very heart of the Christian message. Let me give you the layers though around that second and third. What was necessary secondly? Well, that that substitutionary death happened on a cross. What was necessary is that that substitutionary death happened on a cross and not just a back alley somewhere where he died. It had to be on a cross because the cross signified something critically important. The cross was an act of formal judgment by the human courts against someone, an execution. It wasn't just a mob death. It was a considered, thoughtful judgment of the courts against someone. And a cross, says the Old Testament in Galatians 3, is a sign that someone who dies on a cross is under the curse of God. It's a death so gruesome and terrible. It's a death so evidence of crime that to die on a cross, to be hung up on a cross, is only for those that are truly cursed by God. Jesus needed to die like this because the one that he stands in for were themselves, are ourselves, under the curse of God. So serious is our sin. And so this Jesus who substitutes himself has to substitute himself into a context that matches the judgment we face, which is under the curse of God as a formal, just judgment of the heavenly courts. He had to suffer the same. To signify to us how terribly, how dreadfully true the horror of sin is, how serious it is, how much under a curse it is to be under the judgment of God and also to show us his love. Now, it had to be on a cross. That's why chapter 11. You see what happens in chapter 11? Up until chapter 11, there's been mention of hostility towards Jesus where people wanted to kill him. But it was just random blokes who just got angry and wanted to kill him. But what you have here in chapter 11, verse 47, is the calling of a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the formal council of the Jewish nation. 
And what you have here down in verse 49 and, and 50 is the decision of the court of Israel. This has now escalated and what John's reporting for us is that that hostility, which Jesus provoked incidentally, but that hostility has now finally come to its apex such that this court of Israel has taken it all so seriously and has determined, verse 53, to plot to take his life, that we're now positioned to achieve the very thing that's necessary, which is the handing over of Jesus formally to the Romans, who were the ones who could execute him by the cross. All the pieces are now coming together. And John is reporting the process and how this occurs. Um, uh, they now choose to hand him over to death. You see, what was necessary to save us? Jesus dies as a substitute on a cross. In our place, under the curse of God. To free us from that curse. But that's what was necessary and this reports how that process comes about. Third, what was necessary is that all of this be according to the very will of God Himself. What's necessary is that this not just be a human finding some way to climb successfully to God, but what is necessary is that we see that this is all of God. And that's why verse 51 matters. You see, John reports for us that Caiaphas's determination now to substitute Jesus for the people, to have him die in the place of the people, John reports for us that he didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. John tells us the most important truth, that the cross of Christ... The substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, that whole terrible series of events that led up to that happening, the hostility of Jesus, the provoking of Jesus to bring that to its final head and apex, his elevation into the discussions of the great ruling council of Israel, the determination to hand him over to the Romans was all according to God's plan. It was exactly as God determined it to be. It was him, look at the words verse 50, Caiaphas made these words up himself, he didn't realise he was speaking the word of God, but those very words he spoke, you do not realise that it's better for you that one man die in the place of the people, were the very words of God. He prophesied. It was God who determined in his eternal counsels that it was better that Jesus, one man, dies in the place of us. God determined that. It was Him who decided that. Jesus' death as a substitute on the cross was God's idea. It was His will to crush Jesus. Isaiah 53. Does that not humble you? You know, um, there's a humbling here, I think, that comes too from just the sovereign power of God. Just reflect with me on this. What's, what's necessary that a human is able to speak their freely chosen words that they thought up themselves and yet those words be exactly what God determines they spoke? What's necessary for it to be possible for a human to speak freely, without coercion and yet have every single word 
said exactly as God wants them said. What's necessary? A God with immense power. You know, let me just dig into this just a touch. It's a little bit of a tangent, but it's worth reflecting on. Um, do you know, what we have reflected here is the sovereignty of God over humans in a way that doesn't stop humans being responsible agents who are free to make choices. One of our challenges as we hear this kind of thing is that we imagine if God is sovereign over a human, it must be that the human as a puppet has no will of their own, is no longer responsible because they're made to do what they do by God. And we think like that because the only way we can exercise sovereign power over something else is if it's inanimate. You know, if we think to make something else do what we want, it must be something that has no will of its own. It must be a, a puppet, a creature that's inanimate, you see. Um, and so we imagine if God is making Caiaphas or sovereign over Caiaphas's every word, it must be because he's made Caiaphas a puppet at that point. He can't be free. So we struggle with this. And it's just worth reflecting on this. That, um, what I want to invite you to consider is that God is so powerful that he can ensure that a human who has his own will is a free agent. God is so powerful that he can control that creature without them ceasing to be a free agent. Now, we get some inkling of this in our human experience where, you know, we, we, we can control puppets completely, but we do have a kind of power that can control creatures with their own will, to some degree. Dogs. Not cats, actually. Dogs. Um, do you know, you can have a dog and you can actually get it to do things you want it to do while it's choosing to do what it does, you see. It's, you've not stopped it, you've not made it a puppet. So we get a sense in which we have some power to control creatures that have their own will without taking their will away from them. Uh, but not completely. I have a beagle, not at all. Um, but, um, but my point is this. Well, you can start to see we have the kind of power that can control uh, creatures with a will of their own to some degree. But God is of such immense power, control, authority, that he can control people who freely choose what they choose without diminishing their freedom. God is so powerful. And that's exactly what you have reflected here in verse 51, 52, that Caiaphas spoke as a prophet without him even knowing he was prophesying. God is the God who has the heart of the king in his hand, says Proverbs 21, I think from memory. God is the God who has the heart of the king in his hand and he turns it as he wills, like a watercourse. Even the powerful king. This is all of God. God was in Christ, working to reconcile you to himself. This is not powers against Jesus taking over. It's not Jesus getting caught up in circumstances beyond his control. It's not the power of Caiaphas that's making it happen. It's God. Now, why does God do this? Why, does God, why is it God's will to crush his son? There's a few answers to that question. But the one for our purposes tonight, why is it God's will to crush his son? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. God so loved you, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. This is all of God. He gave his son. We didn't take the son's life. He gave it. It's God who came to seek and save us, a people who had rejected him and lived as hostile towards him. 
Um, do you know, um, God in His grace doesn't just send Jesus. Jesus is the coming of God into our world. So the death of Jesus is not just the death of an innocent third party, but it's the death of God Himself, we can say, in some extraordinary measure. Um, God comes to give His life, to absorb in Himself. This is the, the glory of it. God comes to absorb in Himself the consequences of your, my betrayal, my treason. And it kills Him. He dies under a curse. Um, you know, I said at the outset that all of this would humble us and lift us up. Let me talk briefly about those two things. It, all of this humbles us, the three things that were necessary, that Jesus die as a substitute, that that substitution be by the cross, that it all be God's work, that God was in this, reconciling us to himself. It humbles us. I'll tell you how it humbles us. This was necessary? Sin is no small thing. When you see what was necessary to save us from sin, you realise how big sin really is. And that's the sin that you and I have, which is humbling. Because of my betrayal, because of my treason, God had to come to die in my place. Friends, you cannot pay for your own sin before God. It is too deep and serious. You can't deal with it by a few religious rituals. You can't go to some river in the Ganges and wash and imagine that'll cleanse your sin. You can't turn over a new leaf and try and be a really good and kind person who pursues all the causes and expect that that will make you sin, your sin go away or be acceptable. Sin is too deep, it's too serious, it's too profound. All of this humbles us. Our only hope is that God comes to die. God comes to pay. It humbles us. It humbles us too because of his power. The power that he has to rule over kings, the high priest, the Romans, the rulers. By very words that are spoken, God rules over those words. God is in control, friends. We live in his world. He is the power. You cannot thwart Him. Our world cannot break free from His purposes. It humbles us. But it lifts us up. You see, how does it lift us up? This powerful God, this sovereign Lord of the universe, how does He use His power? He uses that power to seek and save you. He comes for you because he's a God of love. He comes to pay what you couldn't pay. He comes to pay it for you as your only hope because he's a God of love, of lavish grace and mercy. The God who is rich in mercy. This is our God. And if you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus then He is now for you and He has set His affections upon you and He will never let you go. The great powerful God has determined your future for you and praise God for that. Doesn't that exalt and lift you up? You are loved 
like no one else has loved you. You are loved by a God who has paid the ultimate price for you. No one will love you like that. You have a God who has given himself for you and now holds you in his arms, in his hands to carry you through all the ups and downs of life. You know, we've acknowledged tonight the consequences of a disease that Glenn has come come to him, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, which now changes the rest of his life. They'll have to live with the implications, unless the Lord heals him, they'll have to live with the implications of that. But here's the assurance for them and the assurance for us. He'll do that knowing he's in the hands of a loving God who was sovereign over all things, who has died for him under the curse as a substitute. He is now for Glenn and Jackie and will carry them for the rest of their days according to his purposes and plans for them which are good. He'll work all things together for their good, whatever they are. And that provides them a, 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 a security and a stability, which you've got as well. You've got that tonight if you follow the Lord Jesus. He is now for you. The sovereign Lord of the universe has come and paid a price as a substitute under the curse, on a cross, as his purpose planned for you. You can entrust yourself to him and be secure. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the extraordinary gift of your love. We thank you that you were in the Lord Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to yourself, that nothing happened outside of your purposes and will. That evil men handed Jesus over to crucifixion, but they did nothing outside of your set purpose and plan. Thank you for the great confidence and joy that brings into our lives. Thank you for the knowledge that we can be loved by the God of this universe. Uh, I pray for those amongst us tonight who are reflecting on these things that you might cause people in in this room here tonight particularly to reflect on the seriousness of sin and what was necessary to save us. But by that reflection, you might stir us to never drift into apathy, to never drift into half-baked Christianity, uh, to never be superficial but rather always be compelled to want to serve and love and praise you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.